0: Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property, I'm Peter Switzer. This program goes out on Thursday nights on our YouTube channel. Just go to Switzer Financial Group YouTube and you'll find it. Become a subscriber and press the like button as well. On tonight's show, Eliza Owen, Head of Research at CoreLogic, puts the house price growth around Australia into statistical perspective, yep it's happening. Bruce Hockman is an economist with the Australian Bureau of Statistics and he'll look at the housing loan situation and he also confirms, yep, the data is saying the market and the housing sector is on the way up again. And then Mike Day from an urban development company called Roberts Day says governments have to step up and spend because population growth has really shocked everyone and therefore they have to spend on things like a very fast train to make sure that people can populate Australia, not always in the big cities, but around plenty of places where there's potential for growth. That's the show for tonight. So without any further ado, let's go and catch up with Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. We're trying to get to the bottom of what's really going on with house prices in Australia, and the right person to talk to is Eliza Owen, who's Head of Research in Australia for CoreLogic. Eliza, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you know house prices are very controversial nowadays, and you guys are right in the middle of that controversy.
1: Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) True.
0: That's That's a statement, I guess. So let's start off with the the fact that house prices fell, Mm -hmm. and a lot of doomsday merchants thought they'd fall 40%. What was the actual fall?
1: Uh, Overall, we saw a decline of about 8.6% nationally, but it varies depending on which market you're looking at. Uh, And you can't really talk about the Australian property market as one market. Um, So, very different performance across the capital cities. Mm. Um, At June 2019, we saw that Sydney and Melbourne markets were very close to bottoming out. Mm. Um, Each market bottomed out about uh, 10% below their peak price. Mm. They've since had a really strong rebound. But then if you look at markets like Perth and Darwin, um, Perth is still sitting about 20% below its peak Um, Mm. Value Mm. and the Darwin market is uh, over 30% below its uh, peak value, which uh, they reached in about 2014 at the height of the mining boom.
0: Have those two markets always been more volatile than say Sydney and Melbourne?
1: I don't think they have always been more volatile. Mm. I think what happened was, we actually saw like quite a convergence between housing cycles before the global financial crisis yes. and before this kind of unprecedented mining boom yeah so it, it was after those kind of structural events that we started to see uh, more volatility in the markets at different times mm. um, so now that we've seen the decline of mining investment uh, the Perth and Darwin markets have been falling in value for the uh, better part of about five years. Mm.
0: And this might be a hard question, but you're the sort of person who should a- try and answer this. <laughs> I'll have a go. If you looked at Perth and Darwin, where they were before the mining boom really fed their mm. housing boom, mm. are they still above where they started from?
1: Uh, I'd say they're coming back to those levels. Mm. Um, I'd probably have to go and Yeah, it's a tough question. Double I, 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 I didn't prepare data. you for
0: it, but I thought it's interesting to, to know. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember reporting that the Perth uh, price rises in particular, and Darwin, were extraordinary for a long time when Sydney and Melbourne weren't doing much at all. Yeah, exactly. And, And that was purely because there was an exceptional mining boom. Would yes. that be the, the fair argument?
1: Yeah, that's right. And then on the East Coast, you had um, the onset of the global financial crisis in Australia, which mm. actually really hit Australia in 2009. Mm. Uh, and that was a time where the finance sector was more affected, say. And so markets like Sydney and Melbourne, where you have more job concentration in those sectors, uh, mm. weren't, weren't performing as well. Okay. As I've
0: got you here, I might as well keep asking you hard <laughs> questions, you, you, you can always say I don't know the answer to it because okay. I don't know the answer to it and I'm an economist as well, but you you specialise in the area. Some of the, Some of the critics of me when I say I don't think we're going to fall 40% unless we have a really mm. serious recession and unemployment goes over 10% mm. will I expect to see a really serious house price fall. But country, countries like Ireland um, have had... Uh, and Spain has substantial falls in house prices. Is it sensible to compare our property market to say, for example, the Irish market?
1: I think that the Australian financial markets have seen a lot more stability Mm. because we've had this oversight from APRA that's been coming in and Mm. implementing um, certain regulations Mm. that have enabled the lending space to become more Um, or or I guess less susceptible to uh, risky lending. Mm. So at the height of the previous upswings in Sydney and Melbourne, for example, we saw that nearly 50% of lending was going out on interest-only terms. Mm. So APRA comes in uh, in March 2017 Mm. and announces by September that year, Mm. there's gonna be a 30% cap on the portion of interest-only lending that goes out. Uh, And once that announcement was made, we saw the portion of interest-only lending drop significantly. It's Mm. now sitting at about half that, at about 14%. Um, we see in the LVR space that a majority of loans are going out with an LVR of less than 80%. Yep. Um, and we've also got stability in the nature of mortgage repayments as well. A majority of Australians who hold a mortgage are ahead on their repayments, yep. um, which is not to say that you know, no one is, is struggling with mortgage mm. repayments. Yep. Um, but generally, I think we have a pretty sound uh, lending space. Mm. And if that changes, as we've seen in the past, we know that APRA are likely to intervene again. So it's a
0: tick for regulators, from your point of
1: view. I think it's just created a more stable lending space. We see it in the data. Um, And we also see in the finance data that a lot of the um, upswing that's happening at the moment is coming from people who, are actually gonna live in their properties. Mm. So we can expect that the quality of property transacting is is better as well as a reflection of that. Mm. Um, Obviously, in the wake of the Royal Commission, we've seen that there is a lot of um, regulation and and review of what's needed Mm. uh, when it comes to the sort of individual lending transactions. Mm. But on the aggregate, the numbers look pretty good. So
0: you're kind of implying that as the proportion of people who buy a home to live in increase relative to property investors, it makes our market, I I guess, potentially less sensitive to big price falls because the investor will will vacate quickly where a person doesn't easily walk away from their home unless they lose their job and they just can't make their payments. Uh,
1: I think there's really something in that and we see that in like holding periods when we compare owner occupiers to investors. Investors are more willing to cop a loss on their property whereas owner occupiers are more willing to hold because they're using the property as a consumption good. Yeah,
0: good point. Clearance rates now. Last weekend was pretty big.
1: Yeah, so last weekend we saw that the volume of auctions across the combined capital cities had broken a thousand. Mm. So we had about... Uh, 1,100 auctions go up across the capital city markets. Um, The preliminary clearance rate that we saw for the combined capitals was up near 70%. Mm. Uh, We've got our final numbers coming out tomorrow, so Mm. that might come down a little bit, Um, but a pretty strong start when you consider that around this time last year, the clearance rate was sitting at uh, sort of 50% high 40, so Mm. significant increase there.
0: Okay, and how about the supply of properties? Because that was part of the reason why house prices fell because there, there weren't really a lot of properties on the market but people turned up to auctions and kept big them up uh, to extraordinary levels and then the recovery of the market has been held back by the fact that there, there aren't a real lot of, uh, well the prices have spiked because there aren't many uh, properties on the market. Are we seeing a, a, an increase in the supply of properties going to auction in this autumn um, season?
1: It's interesting, we actually have seen an increase in the volume of properties going to auction. I think it's important to make a distinction when we talk about the supply of properties and prices. It's true that when there are more listings on the market generally, that this can put downward pressure on growth rates. It mm. can give buyers more choice. Yep. Um, but what we've seen in the auction space is that clearance rates can rise even though auction volumes are rising as mm. well. In fact, auction volume rise, um, they they rise because the potential sellers see the clearance rates mm. uh, going up. So that those two tend to sort of move together. Yep. Um, so we've seen an uplift in volumes on this time uh, last year, mm. um, as well as those kind of So what you're saying rates.
0: then is, and I think I, I heard that Sydney was around 70, uh, 80 and Melbourne's around 70%. For the preliminary So people result, in Sydney who yeah. hear that the clearance rates yeah. were 80% are more likely to turn up for an auction next weekend on the basis that this market's getting hot again, I better get in now. Is that is that the kind of thing you're thinking about?
1: Yeah, there mm. is positive momentum in that because mm. people um, see that prices are coming off their, um, off the sort of recent mm. lows, mm. Um, but it's also that sellers who, you know, were maybe sitting on the fence when it comes to selling their property, yeah. they're seeing those clearance rates <coughs> and saying, okay, maybe now's a good time to sell because yeah. the clearance rate is high, we have a high incidence of, you know, potentially selling mm. at auction.
0: Yeah, how, how long do you think this current boom's got before someone, someone says, We can't do do this anymore. We can't do this anymore.
1: It's a really good question. Yeah, I want a good answer too. So uh, we're already seeing deceleration in growth rates. Mm. Uh, Growth rates
0: of prices or growth rates of auctions? or Of
1: dwelling values, sorry. So of of the value of the market. So if we look at what's happened in uh, Sydney and Melbourne, say, over the past few months, uh, in November last year, the monthly growth rate for Sydney was nearly 3%. Mm. As of January, that's now down to 1%. Uh, mm. uh, and similar pr- price growth. Uh, yes, yep. 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 similar yep. in uh, Melbourne. Mm. So we saw a result of uh, about 2.2% uh, in November and it's come down to 1% uh, as well. Okay. So I think you know, that, that goes a long way uh, in, in telling us that the kind of price rises that we've seen in, in this really strong rebound, they, they can't necessarily be sustained because you've got affordability constraints and mm. we will see more properties uh, coming to market as well, which mm. will put downward pressure on growth rates. Okay,
0: I think I've heard someone tip 2020 will see house prices rise by 8 to 10%. Do you think that's a little bit on the high side?
1: For which market? Well, let's go
0: Sydney and Melbourne because they're the ones who had the most biggest drop Mm. and and the predictions that were you would see 40% falls Mm. in markets like that what's your best guess I know it's a guess but given the fact you've worked in this industry for quite some time what's your best guess
1: I think it could get up to those kinds of growth rates Mm. um, on an annual basis some at some point over 2020 Mm. Um, and I think that that would be driven by a further cash rate cut. Yeah. So if we see a further reduction in mortgage rates and, and the mortgages are kind of you know cheaper than ever to hold, um, it, it would be an incentive for more people to get into the market, which tends to drive prices up. Mm. So if we look at research from the RBA, for example, um, they estimate that a 1% cut in the cash rate can lead to an 8% increase in property prices, um, a- assuming that the cash rate stays low. Mm. Uh, and I think in Sydney and Melbourne, where you've still got a fairly virtuous cycle in terms of employment and population growth, um, and people really wanting to live there, we've also got this um, this cohort of millennials, the largest generation in Australia, hmm. which are moving through that twenty-four to thirty-five age hmm. group, which is a typical sort of first home buyer age group.
0: That's when they get sensible, or <laughs> okay, get I'll get I'll get mature, and then. Going to the, the silliness they of buying the, a home. They <laughs> make
1: the transition from yeah. renting to yeah. owning something. Yeah. So I think with that added demographic pressure, that's another sort of demand factor that could add to the um, those sorts of price rises over 2020 in Sydney and Melbourne.
0: Okay, just for the people around the country, my um, best guess, what do you think is going to happen in Brisbane?
1: So Brisbane, over the past few months, has seen um, some pretty good results, Mm. 2% over the three months to January, we saw the um, Brisbane dwelling market rise in values. Uh, And I think that growth rates could continue, perhaps even accelerate in Brisbane when you factor in a potential cash rate cut over 2020, uh, and also more interstate migration. Um, We're seeing that uh, people are sort of, you know, looking to move away when you hit Uh, affordability constraints that are too high in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. So that's something that could be a growth driver for Brisbane and and broader Mm. southeast Queensland. We've also seen across the state that there's been a significant increase in the jobs in professional, scientific and technical services, Mm. uh, which tend to be higher paid sort of jobs as Mm. well, Mm. which could translate to further demand in the Brisbane market. Mm. Um, So I think that could be a a good growth story Mm. for 2020. Hobart? Uh, Hobart, I think, um, potentially a further deceleration in growth rates. just because very well, hasn't it? It it it's had a really strong um, sort of boom period mm. from about 2014. Mm. It's worth noting that that's off the back of a very stagnant uh, growth period for mm. Hobart. Um, but I think again with affordability constraints locally. Uh, that could put downward pressure on growth rates. The thing that Hobart still has going for it is a very strong rental market, Mm. so that could attract more uh, investor interest over the year. Adelaide? Uh, Adelaide, a pretty slow and steady performer. (laughs) Um, You know, it's a market that hasn't traditionally had a high proportion of investment, particularly in the house segment. So I think they could uh, see a continuation of those sort of uh, steady growth rates over 2020, Mm. um, off the back of, again, increased owner-occupier demand through those demographic trends Mm. uh, and lower mortgage rates. And a great
0: place for investors ACT.
1: Yeah, Mm. so uh, that's been a pretty high growth market. Mm. Um, We've seen fairly strong performance where uh, the ACT market is now sitting Uh, the third most expensive property market behind Sydney and Melbourne. And I think we could expect to continue seeing uh, growth rates across uh, the ACT rise. Mm. Uh, Again, it's that kind of relative affordability uh, story. The only thing is they have recently seen a record high level of unit completion. So I think that segment of the market could grow more slowly than houses. uh,
0: Eliza, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. Bruce Hockman, thanks for joining us on Switzer TV Property.
2: You're welcome.
0: So Bruce, can we just work our way through because there's a lot of controversy around the data and I'm not going to ask you to do any forecasting, that's for speculators. But I'd love to get a feel for, as an economist, what you're seeing in the housing sector right now. And you have looked at housing finance data. What are you seeing?
2: Right. Well, the housing finance data, uh, as we released um, a, just a little while ago, was um, I suppose fitted with what we're seeing with building approvals as well. As some indication that there's a um, <clears throat> a bit of a turning point. There's been an uptick now in housing finance data for four consecutive months of of lending to house households for housing. So that's. Um, obviously being seen as a positive, and that aligns pretty well with the (coughs) building approvals data, which has also been rising uh, each month for the four months to to December.
0: Yeah, okay, so... um, And and were these numbers in stark contrast to what we saw from the the middle of 2017 across 2018?
2: Look, uh, I think... I think so. I mean, um, it's fairly clear in the data that those, uh, that early period is showing um, almost an un- uninterrupted decline, whereas now mm. we're actually seeing those, um, I suppose if you're a forecaster, you'd be looking at this and thinking about green shoots of recovery and those sorts of things. But um, yep. certainly the, the weight of sort of consecutive rises certainly does support that sort of interpretation.
0: Okay, you also look at home loan commitments. What are you seeing there?
2: Again, we're seeing that, um, we're seeing the rise over, I think again, the past four months of of data coming through from from the banks. <clears throat> Timing is interesting because it also coincides with the new collection vehicle that the Reserve Bank APRA and ourselves are using, but um, consistent across that so that time period, we're certainly seeing, again, an uptick in loan commitments. Yep. And you'd expect that to come through as drawdowns as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bruce, do you um, disaggregate the data so you can see what's happening to, say, for example, first-home buyers and property investors?
2: <clears throat> we certainly look at first-home buyers and property investors. It's probably... Uh, a little bit messy right at the moment because we're right on the cusp of um, the introduction of the first home, this, uh, first home buyers scheme from the federal government, and we know that when state governments uh, have introduced schemes, that that's produced um, some uptick in uptick in the numbers. And it's even possible that <clears throat> with the scheme kicking in from January, that we actually were starting to see some of those commitments come through as people lined up their finance ahead of time.
0: Hmm. So, in, in terms of, say, so let's concentrate first of all on first-home buyers. Uh, are we seeing them, I, I, I recall seeing there's a bit of an uptick during the period where the market was going down. At, but So, I guess I'm asking the question, as the market gets stronger and prices start to rise again, are first-home buyers starting to drop out of the market?
2: um we're not seeing that seeing that as yet that remains a a possibility the other possibility of course is that they may choose to um try and jump in early so that Mm -hmm. they don't miss the 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 next up cycle so once the up cycle is underway there's something of a pressure to actually jump jump into the market now admittedly the market is a little bit segregated between the um the first home buyers and those that are buying subsequently. And we saw in previous episodes that um, as, as schemes came in that made it cheaper for first home buyers to enter the market, a lot of that ended up being absorbed in the price anyway.
0: Hmm. Now, one of, that, one of the things that we economists do, Bruce, and, and I think a lot of normal people don't get this, is that we try to look at the, the major variables that will determine you know, where consumption goes to, where house prices go to. And I know when I, I used to teach the consumption function at Universities of New South Wales, I, t- I explained to students there are things called marginal response coefficients, indicating which variables are more important than the, and those which aren't important. When you try to look at the important uh, uh, drivers of house prices and therefore confidence in the housing sector—is it interest rates or is it jobs that ha- is the more important factor driving enthusiasm for houses?
2: Look, it's um, I think look, it's like most things. It's a, a little of both. There's Certainly, when you're looking for at the other end of the cycle or whatever, the drivers for A downturn in housing, a job seemed to be, and the outlook for jobs seemed to be pretty important to that, which is, I suppose, one reason why people have remained pretty confident about um, the housing market has been that these sorts of levels of unemployment, around 5.1%, we're not likely to see the forced selling that creates the downturn in housing. So, the fact that there's no downturn on the horizon, that seems to be something that um, housing is a long-term commitment and the security of employment drives into that. At these levels of interest rates, it seems like if you're trying to drive housing activity from interest rates, we've got to the point where it's probably like pushing on a piece of string.
0: Mm. Okay, so looking at your, the history that you've you've been involved in, looking at the housing sector, And I'm sure you were interested when you heard the stories that I was reacting to in the media, people predicting that house prices here could fall by 40%. I don't want you to make forward predictions, but looking at the history of the Australian property market, did you think it would have to be a very extreme set of economic circumstances that would see house prices fall by 40% in this country?
2: Look, it would be absolutely extreme for anything like that to to happen. As I talked about the the employment data, the possibility of force selling. a lot of those really extreme predictions come from offshore economists and they really don't understand, I think, the dynamics of the Australian property market, the fact that we don't have non-recourse loans, um, the fact that we have this cultural connection to... Um, housing seems to be something that they don't factor in. Um, it's unlikely the Reserve Bank would ever push interest rates to the, um, the level again or not in the, any foreseeable future where you, they themselves create some of that carnage. So all of those things um, mitigate against those disaster-type disaster type scenarios. In fact, I think the most extreme one that I've seen had a 90% fall in property prices in particular, um, particular areas and, you know, mm. that, to- that means a million dollar house selling for $100,000, that's mm. um, just no scenario I can conceive that creates that.
0: Bruce Hockman from the ABS, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Well, a lot of people would be surprised to learn that we've uh, hit 30 million people in Australia, about 30 years ahead of what was expected. To work out the implications for areas like real estate, I've got uh, Mike Day, who is the co-founder of Roberts Day, which is an urban planning and design firm, and he's a fellow with the Planning Institute as well. Mike, thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, Peter. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's kick off first of all, just tell us what your firm does.
3: So Peter, we've basically um, got studios around the country we, we started off in Perth, but we've now got studios in all the capital cities, and we provide a consultancy service to the land development industry and the urban development industry. And our, our mainstay is laying the foundation for new communities. So basically build new towns, new townships, and um, we do a lot of work around uh, transit stations, transit oriented development, that, that sort of that sort of thing.
0: Okay. So, um, tell us about the population growth surprise.
3: Okay, so Peter, what's happened is back in um, 1988, the ABS projected that we would hit um, 30 million. in um in 20 2050 so what's happened is we've actually got to you know a population of 25 million 20 years 20 or 25 years ahead of ahead of those projections so we've really and last year i think there was an increase of 400,000 the population increase of 400,000 so what it's what it's causing is you know a lot of a lot of problems in terms of congestion and overbuilding in our capital cities that we're very, we're really struggling to sort of keep up with so what the proposition is that we really should be building new cities. So the demographers and the ABS are now projecting that we need to build essentially a new Canberra every year for the next 40 years until to really sort of accommodate accommodate that growth. And what we've been doing is just incrementally building around the outskirts of the capital cities, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, in a very suburban manner, which is causing lots of lots of problems.
0: Okay. So can I... I guess link it to a, a story that's been around for a long time uh, and that is if we have a very fast train, places like Goulburn outside of Sydney could become an, a new urban centre. Do we need that kind of infrastructure change to, to build a, a new Canberra um, you know, every, like, how many, every year, did you say?
3: Every year, every year for the next 40 years, so we've got 16.8 million people that we need to accommodate over that 40-year period. So that equates to 400,000. That's that's that equates to a Canberra every year, or a Darwin every 12 weeks. And the problem we've got at the moment is we're incrementally developing in a very suburban pattern. It's very much car dependent. And it's yep. causing congestion problems. So the, one of the biggest issues we've got now is congestion around, particularly the two megacities of Melbourne and Sydney. So we're projected to go from 5 million to 9 and 10 million. And you are aware that Melbourne's due to exceed um, Sydney in terms of size, primarily because of topography. So we've got these two megacities, you know, almost doubling in size and very little in between. And it's interesting that um, Boris Johnson this morning or yesterday has just announced the high-speed rail HS2, the high-speed rail, from um, you know London to Birmingham, which is going to, and the proposition is that you rebalance the settlements. So rather than just putting all the the, the development within those two cities, we'll be able to sort of revitalise and um, rejuvenate. I think sort of a lot of the country towns and the country areas that are between Sydney and Melbourne.
0: Well, what about that Goulburn strategy that people keep mentioning, all, all the way along the line?
3: Well, it's that's part and parcel of it. So what's proposed is the the possibility of eight new cities between Melbourne and Sydney, one of which would be, you know, between Canberra and Sydney, and that link is just would be vitally important as well. And because the air routes at the moment we're told are between I think number two or number three in the world in terms of most heavily trafficked air routes in the world between Sydney and Melbourne. So connection, yeah. connection between Canberra and, and Sydney, Sydney would be would vital, vital in the overall. In the overall and that and that Goulburn, Goulburn would be ideal. Ideal to take, to advantage, take advantage, advantage of that. Of that
0: is there a government reluctance to make a big commitment to the kind of infrastructure um, investment that's required for a, a very fast train and then to put the the dollar muscles behind developing a, a gulban or making uh, Wollongong or newcastle equivalent to say sydney or, or
3: melbourne yeah well, there's no question that it's a significant impulse to, to build a you know high speed rail or put the infrastructure in but then there's been a lot of discussion more recently about value capture or value creation so the essence of what's being proposed in the latest business case that the federal government are considering um, they've they've set up a high-speed rail authority and they've appointed a ceo and they're considering a business case that proposes to build the high-speed rail and to build new cities around the rail around these rail hubs um, that, or it's on rural land, and then obviously there's an uplift in the, the value of that land, which will then defray the cost of putting the, the high-speed rail in. So it's a it's a quid pro quo there, and I think that's the most advantageous way to, to put forward these high-speed rail propositions.
0: Yeah, because you will then get developers wanting to build, you know, um, uh, suburbs and towns around the major centres. So it becomes like a win-win multiplier, doesn't it?
3: it does peter and but the essence of it is so important that as you say rather than the suburban model it has to be something urban we've t- we've been talking more recently about urbanizing the burbs we need an urban form you know think of townhouses or courtyard housing maybe even apartments that are in close proximity to the rail stations that alleviates the need for, for particularly the younger generations to purchase cars, and we're seeing this now. A lot of the younger kids, they aren't getting their licence till they're 28 or 30 years old. Some of them aren't getting licences at all, but they need to live in an environment that fosters that urban sort of setting. Everything's compact, connected, mixed-use and walkable.
0: Yeah. I guess it's fair to say once you've got those little ankle biters running around in your life, that's when you might think, I at least need to hire a car or something like that because certainly children... Uh, Change your lifestyle, don't they? And on that subject, that's what you're referring to, isn't it? That we need lifestyle changes or we need to
3: accommodate
0: the lifestyle changes that we're seeing develop right now. Well, I think that you've
3: actually nailed it there. This is the real issue. It's not so much just affordable housing, it's affordable living. Because the transport costs now, and, you know, when you look at Sydney as the second most expensive city in the world to, to, you know, to purchase a house, and Melbourne I think is about fourth or fifth most expensive in the world, that it's not just affordable housing. The cost of transport now, particularly for those that are out in these suburbs, is actually exceeding the cost of housing. So what RAC, the RACV and RACQ are saying is it's ten to twelve thousand dollars per car that you cost that the cost the annual cost of running a car every year is ten to twelve thousand, and that could save a hundred thousand off the mortgage. So if we can create these walkable neighbourhoods connected with transit, got the electric bikes, we've got all these other modes of you know Uber and um, car share, then they'll alleviate the need for the car. It'll become much more affordable. Mike, thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure, Peter. Thank you very much. All the best.